my name's Derek. I'm lead pastor at Blue Valley, and um, I don't get to get over here very much, but, but on days when it snows, I really like to drive extra. And so I uh, was happy to come over here and be with you today. Uh, actually been planned to do that for quite some time. It just so happened that we got a little snow with it. So uh, it's good to be here with you. Now, we find ourselves um, reflecting on memories this time of year, perhaps more than most. And one of the things I've noted about memories is that they tend to be contained not in movies but in snapshots. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, we tend to think of pictures when we think of our memories, and not movies, the, 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 the whole playing out of the event. For instance, um, I remember in snapshots uh, meeting my wife. We met on January the 1st, 1989, got married January the 6th, 1990. In case you misheard me, that means we got married a year and five days after we met, and not five days after we met. I think it's important that you know that. But but I, I, uh, I remember walking onto that old dilapidated church bus and seeing her as we got ready to head for a ski trip to Colorado. I remember seeing, the day we got married, the green shag carpet in the worship center in which we got married. I, I remember seeing her at the back when I saw her in her wedding dress for the first time. We tend to contain memories as snapshots like that. It's also true of our favorite Christmas memories. I, I remember my favorite Christmases in snapshots. I, I see in snapshots Christmas Day 1978 when I got, as a seventh grader, um, don't freak out Johnson County parents, my first shotgun. Um, I said that one time. I said that one time in a worship service at Christmas Eve over at Antioch. There were audible gasp in the room from every helicopter parent that existed at that point in time. Problem is, I got uh, I got the, my shotgun later than all my friends, and so I was ostracized for waiting until seventh grade. But I still have that shotgun. Still go hunting with that shotgun. I see that day. I see in snapshots Christmas 1990, and Julie and I decorating the. Church parsonage in which we lived for Christmas, our first married Christmas together. I see uh, Christmas Day 2009 when our family, like every other family in this area, was snowed in by a Christmas Eve blizzard and we couldn't get out and uh, you all couldn't get into trouble so my phone didn't ring and, and we all just sat there uh, as a family in our pajamas and enjoyed the day together. So our memories are contained in snapshots. And I think that today, when we come to the Gospel of Luke, we are seeing snapshots, really, in people's minds, the principal players of the Christmas event, and what they remembered about Christmas as it unfolded on the world. And so why don't you, in your Bibles, find the Gospel of Luke. It is the third book of the New Testament. We're going to look at the first two chapters of that book because they contain the written record of what was remembered by those who experienced Christmas as it unfolded upon the world, and we're going to start with Mary. Now, Mary, of course, needs no introduction. We first meet her during the angelic visitation from the archangel Gabriel as he comes to her and tells her that she is blessed among women and that she is going to be the one through whom the Holy Spirit of God was going to give the Messiah to the world. And as confirmation of this miraculous thing that she is told, she is told at this same time 
that her relative Elizabeth, an elderly woman married to an elderly man who had been barren their entire lives, was also expecting miraculously a child. And so she, she rushes from her town to go and find Elizabeth to see if indeed what the angel had said about her was true as a confirmation that what the angel had told her about her situation was true. And when she sees Elizabeth and that word is confirmed in her heart's her soul literally explodes in joy. And what she said is recorded for us in a passage of Scripture known as the Magnificat. It begins at verse 46 of Luke 1. It tells us that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring Forever. Now, folks, we could literally spend an entire message on just those words and not be able to really even scratch the surface of the beauty of all that they portray to us about God and His plan. It's easy, though, as we look at it come from like a 30,000-foot view, to see that we, we have the recollections, we have the testimony of a girl whose heart had been completely captured by God. And that, that vision of God that she had seen, which had so captured her heart, was not of God as some kind of disconnected spirit that's pulling the levers of the universe and just making it go. She is captured by a vision of God whose, whose thoughts towards her were personal, whose understanding of her life situation was personal, who had fixed his gaze on her as an individual, and the, the thought that God had fixed his gaze on her in such a personal way stretched the capacity of her language to even be able to express it. I want you to notice what she says again in the, in the first part of her song. In verse 48, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That word humble is a word um, which, which is having a hard time finding its way from Mary's language into our English language and being able to carry all the meaning. In your scriptures, it is translated literally. I mean, humble is an appropriate translation, but it doesn't carry the depth of meaning with that translation that is contained in Mary's language. And so to help you see how, how deep and rich that word is to Mary, I want you to think of it as another word. I want you to think of it as the word afflicted. Mary is saying, for he has looked on the afflicted estate of his servant. So in what ways, we need to ask ourselves, might Mary see herself as being afflicted? Because I'm a Baptist preacher, there are three things that I want you to see here. First, she was afflicted by her poverty. And add to that as a subset, her gender. Now, as a girl, she was deemed as less than than 
every man in the world in which she lived. But she was not just a woman, she was also a poverty-stricken woman, someone whose resources were far too little, and her poverty, when coupled with her gender, was something of an affliction for her. Second, she was afflicted by her sin. Now, I don't mean to pick fights with believers of other stripes who may be here today, but I want you to notice that she addresses her praise to God as my Savior. And I would simply point out that those who hold the sinless perfection of Mary and believe that she did not need a Savior have a problem getting to the point of why she would say that she did here. Only sinners need a Savior. So she was feeling the affliction of her sinfulness and her unworthiness before God. And finally, she was afflicted with the plight of her people. She not only recognized the intervention of God in her life as her Savior, she also recognizes that the lives of her people have been afflicted by the same sin that had afflicted her. She was an individual who needed a Savior, but she's recognizing here that her people, Israel, needed a Savior as well. And it is in this afflicted estate of unworthiness on every level imaginable that she says and therefore erupts in prayer Praise to God that he has regarded her. He has looked upon her. God has looked past her unworthiness and he has seen her. He has seen her. And she gets that. And her heart erupts. So, that's Mary. Now, let's move on to a man named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is someone, I did this because I'm, I'm a nerd, I, I, I counted up all of the verses in Luke and assigned them to the various people to whom they refer. There is more verbiage given to Zechariah in Luke than any other person. All the shepherds, uh, Mary, Jesus himself, more words are given to Zechariah than anybody else. And yet he doesn't show up in any nativity scenes that we have. We hardly ever think about him. There are no Christmas songs about Zechariah. But part of the reason there may be no Christmas songs about Zechariah is he's not exactly introduced to us in the most favorable of terms. He is a priest, and he is being assigned a priestly duty in Jerusalem. In fact, it's an honor as the Gospel of Luke opens, for him to be doing what he's doing. He is offering prayers for his people before God. And so as he's in the, the inner part of the temple by himself, an angel appears to him. And that angel tells Zechariah that you and your wife, who have been afflicted with childlessness for your entire lives and have moved past the point of hope that you will ever have children are going to conceive and bear a son. And this son is going to be the precursor of the Messiah. And his name is to be John, middle name the, last name Baptist. All right? Well, this man of faith who had served God faithfully his entire life falters for just a split second. And doubts that this can happen. And ask God for a sign. And as a way of rebuking him for his sin, God gives him a sign all right. He says, you're going to be rendered mute. And one of the things that's lost to us uh, because of our understanding of the word mute is that there are all indications 
in Luke chapter 1 that not only was Zechariah unable to speak, he was unable to hear. At the naming ceremony of John that comes later, um, they have to write out what Elizabeth is saying to him, and he has to write back what he intends. So he had been cut off from all sensory perception of his world except his eyes to, to, to view what God would ultimately do. And so when the opportunity comes for him to recant his faithlessness and name according to the angelic vision his son John, his mouth is released and his ears are opened and we see him erupt in praise as well. Look at verse 68 of Luke 1. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking to his newborn son, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So once again, we have some words which could be a sermon all to themselves, and if we had all of that time, we'd but scratch the surface. But as, again, we look at it from 30,000 feet, I want you to notice how he begins his song. He begins it not by focusing on this child who had finally been born to him. I mean, I want you to think, and maybe you have gone through a, a time of childlessness. I want you to think about what your heart would feel with a child given. That would be where your thought would be. Everything else wouldn't matter. It would be that. But here, his first words for several verses are not about finally being a father. All of his words are about God sending a Messiah. And all of his words are couched in the language of rescue. And that would have been something that would have been very easy for the people listening to him to grasp. Luke places the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a particular time. He says they unfolded in the days of King Herod. And by giving us this information, Luke is telling us that these events occurred in a particular period of political tension. Herod was a ruthless figurehead king who had been appointed by the the city, the nation of Rome. And his job was to be the iron-fisted ruler of Rome in this little backwater province and to exact exorbitant taxes from the impoverished people of Palestine. And for centuries, the people of Israel had experienced this kind of thing from one empire or another. And for centuries, they had anticipated the coming of a Messiah who would throw off 
these kinds of abusive rulers and bring upon them a period of peace and prosperity that they had never known. But with what was by all counts the most powerful empire the world had ever known on the rise and firmly in control of their little backwater province, it seemed that the promise of deliverance that God had long given his people was as far away as it had ever been. Their need for rescue in the days of King Herod had never been greater. The birth of the child in the manger points to their need to be saved from their enemies and that God had finally decided in His purpose and in His time to, on His own, act on behalf of people who could not do anything ultimately for themselves. Zacharias proclaiming that God acts in those verses, which now brings us to the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. Let's look at the familiar words from Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as It had been told to them. So darkness flies, all is light. Shepherds hear the angels sing. It is all as peaceful as can be. Except it's not at all. Because the first several verses of Luke 2 tell us the region was in absolute chaos. You know the story. The Roman Caesar had demanded a census be taken of the people of Palestine. And whole populations of folks were on the move. Roads were congested, cities were crowded, and lest we forget, all the hotels were booked. It's something to get you a glimpse. God did this for me. It was a grace he gave me this week. Um, you can imagine what this is like if you go to Kohl's right now. I, uh, I thought I would swing in the other day while I was on lunch to pick up something very quick from Kohl's. And the lines were wrapped around the store. Honestly, my life was shortened by a full decade uh, by just trying to swing in there. You know, it, it gets crowded and it gets crazy and you don't want to be places. That's the way the entire world was. And the shepherds were not exempt from this. Like everyone else, like everyone else, they were required to return to their city of origin 
be counted, and pay their taxes. In fact, there are some who have speculate, uh, speculated that these shepherds were in all likelihood out-of-towners, like Mary and Joseph. And if they were, they were hirelings. That's the kind of shepherd who would be taking the night watch anyway. They wouldn't have owned their sheep. They would have simply been working nights to make ends meet and maybe in this case to pay this ridiculous tax. So outside the walls of Jerusalem were shepherds dealing with the stress that the rest of Bethlehem was facing. And they weren't having prayer services out there. They were working perhaps grousing with one another about their jobs and their taxes and the general hardships that they faced as shepherds, maybe even embittered at their forgotten and disrespected place in the world. Do you realize that in the days in which all of this happened, a shepherd was not considered a valid witness in a court of law? They were held in such low Regard, and then in the midst of all of that, God's glory shone all around them. And He was present, and He was with them, and telling them a Savior had been born for them. So you have three snapshots of Christmas, three different perspectives on that long ago Bethlehem night. And yet, I don't know if you caught this, you probably began to. There's a commonality to all three. They are all snapshots. They are all witnesses to joy. And that's why Luke is a Christmas witness to joy. Now, now seeing joy is, is not something that comes easy to some folks this time of year. We have all seen and heard the data of holiday depression and suicide rates to the point that they've become something of a cliche. But I would just simply remind you that cliches become cliches because what supports them is fundamentally true. And it is fundamentally true that some folks have a very hard time finding joy anytime, but in particular this time of year. And when you add God to that conversation, it sometimes doesn't help because more than a few of those who are stricken with what can lightly be called holiday blues, when reminded of God, are inclined to think, well, all this is your fault anyway. And joy is awfully hard to come by. You see, people like that may think that their life situation in which they find themselves is a bad draw and overwhelming. Not unlike a poverty-stricken girl 2,000 years ago might have been inclined to think of the situation in which she found herself. Or they might think that God has just dealt too harshly with them for just one little moment of faithlessness. Not unlike a spiritually embarrassed old man 2,000 years ago might have been inclined to think about how God had dealt with him for his one little moment of faithlessness. Or... They may be inclined to think that God doesn't think about them at all, that he's forgotten completely about them. Not unlike third shift shepherds 2,000 years ago might have been inclined to think about God's priorities as it relates to them. And yet every one of these people in situations that many of us can understand at least a part of emerge from the first two chapters of Luke not being characterized by their hopelessness, 
but characterized instead by their joy. And so, if, if, if we are struggling finding joy, particularly at this time of year this morning, here's what we can learn from them very quickly. Three things. First, rejoice in a God who sees. Rejoice in a God who sees, like Mary, who is celebrating the fact that God has seen her affliction. And the trigger to God's rescue is always Him seeing. If you go back to Exodus uh, and and look at Moses' first encounter with God at the burning bush, God says from the burning bush to Moses, here's why I'm here. I have seen the affliction of my people and I'm going to do something about it. Rejoice in the fact that God does see the sorrow of your heart and the difficulty of your life. He is not absent from it. And then rejoice in a God who acts like Zechariah. Let's understand that Christmas causes us to rejoice in the fact that God sees our faithlessness, our personal faithlessness, the faithlessness of our people, and understands that we cannot, on our own, find our way to God's blessings. And so, rather than keep us from those blessings, He unilaterally acts and comes to rescue us. Rejoice in a God who acts for your redemption. And then... Like the shepherds, rejoice in a God who pursues. Who pursues the forgotten. Who pursues those who feel like perhaps they are most unworthy. Who feel perhaps like more, uh, more than, than, than other people would that God has forgotten all about them. God pursues. This is the root of the joy of Christmas. Rejoicing in a God who sees, who acts, and pursues. A God who sees, a God who acts, and a God who pursues. And the evidence that that we have, the sign that is given, that all of that is true, is Jesus himself. Because every eruption of joy that we have just seen was in a response to the declaration that a child has been born. And as we trace the path of that child from manger to cross to empty tomb, we see confirmed in every step that God sees us, that God acts for us, that God pursues us. Now, I feel like I need to say, None of that changed Mary's poverty. It it didn't allow Zechariah to relive that moment of faithlessness and erase it from the record. It didn't give the shepherds desk jobs. But it did give them something that they needed more than all of those things. It gave them a savior. And because of that, they had a joy that transcended their circumstances And characterized who they were. And that same Savior can give every person here that same kind of joy and change your eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.